I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them Full Comp sent you. Now here we go. You don't have to live that vampiric lifestyle. You need sleep. You need rest. You need water. You need good food. You need movement and not just behind the bar. That's all you need. And I think that you can't get that when your entire life is wrapped up in being a bartender or being a server or being a manager or an owner. I know it seems like you have to. It seems like a necessity, but you don't. You can take some time for yourself and it'll improve everything. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up, on the house. In the restaurant industry, booze is our best friend and our worst enemy. In many cases, it drives profitability, but the misuse and the mishandling of booze can just as easily drive us out of business. In today's episode, we speak with the acclaimed mixologist and bar owner, Derek Brown, who's advocating for a new take on an old vice. Grab a glass of your favorite non-alcoholic beverage and take a seat as we explore Mindful Mixology. The professional path that led to the Columbia Room is basically like happy accidents, a series of happy accidents, right? I guess I became a reluctant bar owner, like in the sense that I never set out to do that. Sometime around the age of 27, I was sort of a shiftless loser, if you will. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd been working in restaurants and bars since I was 16 years old. My first job was in a Jewish deli in Olney, Maryland called uh, BJ Pumpernickels. I worked in the back of the house, right? So I was a, we'll say garde manger, but really what I did was I took the white fish salad, the tuna fish salad, and the egg salad, and I took an ice cream scooper, and I would scoop each one on a bed of romaine lettuce and put different colorful olives on each one, green or black. <laughs> so one day I was I was talking in the kitchen and Barry Schwartz, the owner, a really larger than life guy and a huge guy, grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. I'm just 16 years old. And he dragged me behind the deli counter and he said, here, let's put that mouth to work where it can actually be useful. So, <laughs> so I went from back of the house, front of the house. That was the first thing to know. After that, I just traveled around work in restaurants and just about every job you could imagine from host to server or whatever. As I mentioned, sometime around 27, I realized that my life was going nowhere, at least my financial life. I was having a great life traveling, but I had probably $30 in the bank account. So I thought, I got to do something. You know, like, and so I started working at this bar uh, restaurant. It's like a neighborhood bar and restaurant called uh, Rockies. And the bartender was leaving. And so Rocky, the owner, turned to me and said, do you know how to bartend? 
And of course, I lied and said, yeah, of course, I know how to bartend. So, <laughs> so I just pretended. I just lied my way into it. And fortunately, the first night that I actually bartended, the first order I got was like either a vodka soda or a Jack and Coke or something like that. So, so it was really easy. I just grabbed the things that it was called. I'm sure it was like the most potent and toxic <laughs> amount of alcohol you could imagine because jiggers did not exist in my world back then. So I realized I was sort of in this position of a shiftless loser, as I described it, and I wanted to do something. And so I said, somebody is the best bartender of the world. And I have no idea who that is, but I don't see why that wouldn't be me, right? That was my thinking at 27 when I was bulletproof and impenetrable. So I was going to be the best bartender in the world. So I started reading and learning everything I could about that. I studied becoming a sommelier. You know, I took the Court of Master Sommeliers tests up to certified. I was actually the first class of certified sommeliers. I took the bar program, the beverage alcohol resource program, and I just kept learning everything that I could. And I started working in restaurants that were kind of like higher end in DC, some of the best restaurants in DC. And I guess I made my name as a sommelier, but I didn't really like being a sommelier in the sense that like I wanted to do something that was more personality driven. Sometimes I felt as a sommelier, you're kind of like what I call a glorified librarian. And I said that and I've gotten in a lot of trouble from sommeliers. So let me just say librarians are amazing. But being behind a bar is a, in my mind, not in everyone's mind, is a more creative endeavor. And so in a more social endeavor, right? As a sommelier, you stop by and you pour a glass of wine, you describe it, you have a little conversation, then you move on. But as a bartender, you're more connected to the people. And I know you know that. So yeah, so I guess what happened there is that I switched back to the bar. And so I started this underground cocktail club, if you will, you know, a little speakeasy, a real speakeasy in the sense that it was a bar within a bar and nobody really knew about it except a small handful of people called Hummingbird to Mars. And a couple guys came in. One was a friend of mine, Brian Miller, who is an architect. And the other was Eric Hilton, who's half of Thievery Corporation, the band. And they were looking to open a classic cocktail bar called the Gibson. So I said, yeah, I'm in. And so Hummingbird Mars shut down. I opened the Gibson and that kind of like shot me on my trajectory. I'd already been studying classic cocktails. as really, And obviously the Hummingbird Mars is our little experiment in trying to create that speakeasy style of bar. But it really, the Gibson kind of launched me into the next strata. And so I kept going out there and doing beverage programs and consulting. And eventually a guy named Paul Rupert sat me down and said, do you want to open your own place? And I was like, well, I never really thought about it, but yeah, that would be awesome. And that's when the Columbia, the kernel of the Columbia room began. And I think that's pretty much catching us up to speed to the middle. But one thing I want to add to it is that the Columbia room started out as a 10 seat cocktail bar. And the reason that was is because one, I was influenced by Japanese cocktail bars, right? They're very intimate, small places. And I love that level of service and detail. And that's something that's easier to do when you have a small group of people, right? But also because I was notorious for hanging out at the end of the Gibson bar, just like talking to everybody. And the service bartenders would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, we need some help over here. And I'm like, you know, waxing poetic about 
the rye whiskey or whatever cocktail, the bijou or, you know, whatever was in my mind at the moment. And so I realized I was like, I'm better off with a smaller group of people where I can kind of hold court. And so that was really the origin of the Columbia. And it did well and won all of these awards. It was absolutely incredible. And I want to talk about the professional success, but first I want to talk about the personal and how achieving professional success impacted you personally. Was it all it was cracked up to be? I mean, it was awesome at first. I was so grateful to be recognized. I remember like the Columbia Room, you know, kind of started in a closet. It was in the back of the passenger and it was literally a closet that we converted into a, a bar. But within the first month or so of it opening, there was an article, and I think it was like in an airline magazine that featured the Columbia Room next to one of Grant Ackett's properties. And I was like, wow. Like, that's amazing. You know, like we're in a closet and we don't have that budget. And so, yes, there were some parts of it that were really great. And we can get into this now or later. There were parts of it that were not so great for me. And that especially revolved around drinking. As I mentioned, I've been in the industry since I was 16 years old. And so who taught me how to drink? You know, it was like grizzled old line cooks and waitresses, wonderful people with lots of great life lessons to learn. But it was not necessarily the healthiest environment for a kid who was learning how to drink, right? And I literally left my home when I was 16. So that was on my own. And these people were instructing me like, this is how you drink. This is how you smoke. This is how you do all that stuff. And all the bad habits were there and all the good information was there, but they were combined. And so I became very accustomed to a style of drinking and lifestyle that was pretty vampiric, you know, at a certain point. I would, in some cases, open the bar in my earlier career at four o'clock. I got in there like three o'clock at 3.15 to set up. And I would work the whole night taking shots periodically. And back then I could smoke behind the bar, which is crazy to think of now. But I'd literally just sit like behind the bar on the like the refrigerator and like smoke and somebody would order a drink and I'd put it out. This is obviously very pre-Columbia room. And then I'd work till three in the morning, wrap everything up at four o'clock and drink till six in the morning or eight in the morning or whatever it was. And so that is what I mean by a vampiric lifestyle. It's just like I was barely seeing the daylight. And so that's okay when you're in your 20s. But as you get in your 30s, it starts to catch up to you. And by the time you're 40, it's like... <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. It's like I shouldn't have had that half a glass of wine last night. That was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so the Columbia Room did really well. And the culmination of all of that work was in 2017 when we won Best American Cocktail Bar at the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards. And we were so grateful for that over the moon. But at that point, my life was not great. A lot of the aspects of my life that when I looked at different outcomes, finances, relationships, health, they were all in turmoil. They were all in bad shape. And so I had to address my mental health and I had to address the way I drank. Before we get there, I want to talk about the success of the Columbia Room itself. I'm sure that you've taken the time throughout your life to evaluate the key decisions that you made mm -hmm. that led to the success of the Columbia sure. Room, right? Because we see people that fail consistently and we see people that succeed consistently. And then for some, it's hit and miss because they haven't figured out exactly what that formula is. Right. If you were to share a blueprint, for what made the Columbia Room so successful. Again, 
like a closet into this nationally acclaimed beverage concept. What does that blueprint look like? I don't want to deny the fact that there's certain advantages to me. I think the singular thing for me that worked apart from those advantages was the fact that I was absolutely in love with what I was doing. I mean, I would shake a cocktail and in my mind, I would repeat a mantra of like, I want this to be the best cocktail that I can make for every single guest. And I tried really hard to make things excellent. So I think advantages aside, I think that I was pretty obsessed is the right word. Passionate is a word that you see in the press. In the industry, we all know it's just obsession, you know, and it's probably some form of neurodivergence <laughs> when it comes down to it. You know, our brain just works differently. Sometimes when I think about it, it's like I remember going, I want to learn everything I can about cocktails. And then it's like 20 years later, it's like, oh, that was a lot. OK, what next? <laughs> so so I really poured myself into every aspect of it. And so when I was saying to myself, I want to be the best bartender in the world. Well, there's no such thing, right? Like, I mean, we know that. I mean, there are people who are excellent at it and deserve the accolades they get, whether it's Mr. Lion, Ryan, or whoever it is, Lynette Marrero. These are amazing bartenders that deserve those accolades. But once you get to this top rung, there's no way to separate who's the best because it's very subjective at that point. But I would say that I got somewhere in the stratosphere. And that was what made me feel like I accomplished that what I set out to do. And so obsession, drive, passion, whatever you want to call it, that was the thing. I don't know if that'll work for your listeners, right? Like, I mean, so what if your listeners listening, they're like, well, I don't have that. How do I make my bar successful? You know? Right. Or it's, I mean, how many bars and restaurants have you seen with world-class food and beverage programs close? I think that there's something to be said for intention. Right. Right. And then something to be said for making sure that you're able to do what you're best in the world at and freed up to do that because there are other people that are handling the shit that you don't care about. I think that the hurdle there is, and I'd like to unpack it if you'll allow me. Yeah, please. If you were making the best cocktail in the world, I don't know if you were balancing your books, right? Or you were paying your bills or you were marketing the concept or reaching out to publications to get coverage. What did that look like? Because it's very hard to be best at the world at everything that you do. And I think that's probably the biggest hurdle in our industry is that many of us are saddled with doing a little bit of the thing we're best in the world at mm -hmm. and a lot of the shit we don't like. That's right. I think that's an excellent point. And when you said about the people who support us, that's a good point, too. I had lots of people who work with me that were really great at what they did and supported me and my dream in a way. And they believed in me because they saw the obsession, the passion that I brought to it. And I think that that model is a little bit broken now in the sense that like that expectation that people are just going to follow you and get paid absolute shit and like work 14 to 20 hours a day or whatever it is. But that was a little bit about what happened. You know, it was everybody was mission driven. But in terms of the shit work, the things you didn't want to do, I did have people that supported me. And the smartest moves I made in my career was when I realized I didn't know something, right? Like, I think that our industry is full of really smart people who don't know everything. 
but have to know everything or pretend to know everything. And so the result of that is that they go down a lot of bad roads that don't really help them. So I'll give an example. I worked with an accountant, uh, bookkeeper, Mary Ellen Giorgot. Oh God, I'm going to butcher her name on this. All right. Uh, we'll just say Mary Ellen for now. And so I worked with Mary Ellen, this bookkeeper. We hired her and that was my partner's idea at the time. And she started running our P&L and giving us feedback on it. And I was like, whoa, this is so much better than us doing it. And it immediately saved us money, right? So another example is like I hired a lawyer named Chip Sandground and he would start writing our contracts and start working with us on legal issues. And he made us money in the sense that like, if the, one of these contracts was broken, we would have a clause that we get money from it. And like all of a sudden, all that money that we paid him came back 10 times. So getting people who knew about areas that I didn't know about was super helpful. And another thing, so professional services, I think are key, right? If I was to distill that, that down to one point and trusting in them and getting good people. But another thing was being flexible in your vision, right? So I was obsessed and I had this like passion and we started a cocktail slash sherry bar called Mockingbird Hill, which was beloved by the industry. David Wondrich and Dale DeGroff and all of these luminaries in the industry came there and they were like, this place is great. We love Sherry, you know, obviously that's like this kind of like industry nod. Nobody else really liked it. I mean, they would come try it and they would always say we loved it. It was great. And finally, I was like, what is happening here? Like there were nights where we had eight people showing up to the bar and I was like, this is crazy. Like we get all the press in the world. All these luminaries love us. What's happening? We got, I think, Bon Appetit, best new restaurant. All this. And I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, well, I love what you're doing here. And it was great to spend one night there, but I don't really like Sherry. So I learned what I could about it. And that was that. Mm. I was like, oh, people are showing up here once. They're not coming back. Um, yeah. That is a big issue. And so maybe that's the limits of passion, right? Like you get to this point and you put something out there and you realize, wow, like, I also had to pay attention to what was going on in a deeper way. And so we turned that into a pop-up bar, which would eventually become the Game of Thrones pop-up bar, which is the most successful bar that I've ever run. I mean, we had 90,000 people in that bar in the course of a month or so. It was crazy. And we had lines for eight hours outside. That was a real sea change from eight people and trying to educate them on what Fino and Amontillado Sherry is. I was really embarrassed at first to do that. I was like, well, this is not going to be because we were doing the Miracle on 7th pop-up, right? We were the first franchise outside of New York before they franchised it throughout the US. And I was embarrassed because like, these cocktails won't be as serious. I'm the serious cocktail guy, right? Like That's what I do. And my partner really argued with me that we should do this and it would be successful. And we did. And not only did it work, but I loved it. I really loved it. It was so much fun. I mean, Christmas and the holidays, I felt like a kid putting it together. And then when we got, by the time we got to the Game of Thrones pop-up bar, it was like I was running Disney and a cocktail bar wrapped up in one because it was like this immersive experience, you know, for those who have never heard of it. It had like, we had animatronics in it. You know, it was like, it was pretty crazy. And so I had to let go of my ego. I had to let go of that drive and passion and realize it wasn't working. 
So that's perhaps another lesson that's kind of a critical part of it. No matter how driven and obsessed you are, if you hit a wall and you can't get through the wall, you just got to stop and then listen to the people around you. Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're going to learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of us as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. Well, it definitely made me realize that great cocktails can be scalable, that sort of fast craft is possible. Obviously, the Columbia and this sort of bespoke cocktails where you're like carving the ice and you're misting things and all the things that you now find in drink masters, if you've seen the show, those aren't going to translate necessarily, but pieces of it can. And so we created this like fast craft and we had, you know, cool glassware and we had in some cases complicated prep that we would just be able to do in advance. And so we learned, it was the whole organization learned how to make that happen. I think that I also learned that that was not a place that I wanted to be for a long time, right? So we actually left behind the pop-up bar in the beginning of 2020. Our last time we served anybody was on New Year's uh, 2019. That turned out to be good for lots of reasons. One, because the pandemic was to follow and our bar at that point relied entirely on bodies. So we would have never survived. Whereas the Columbia Room, we had the opportunity to like package cocktails and that sort of thing. This place, the experience is being there. It was smart in that reason, but also because my health, my well-being, right? Like it was successful, but we had to change over and basically open a new bar every six months. In some cases, every three months. And the people who work there, the designers, the bar managers, the prep managers and stuff, they were constantly overworked and probably underpaid in the sense that what they were bringing value-wise was so huge, but we were still figuring out how to make it all work. So I feel like it was bad for my kind of perspective and health, but it also, it was kind of running everybody ragged. And I didn't want to keep that up. Some people, I think, can probably figure out how to do it. So I rely on you all out there in the world to create the next scalable, immersive pop-up bar, House of Dragons, whatever. But I could not make that work in my mind and with my staff. So we walked away from it. And to be honest with you, that's walking away from a lot of money. 
Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your personal journey throughout, because if we flash back to pre-pandemic, publicly, you're at the top of the world, right? You're awarded, you're acclaimed, you're successful, you're fucking busy, multiple concepts. But you had this whole realization, reevaluation of your personal relationship with booze. And I want to start with the trigger point. What was the moment that triggered that process to begin? <laughs> is a moment only people in the industry will really understand. <laughs> I was really drunk one night. I had separated from my partner. My son was born, but he was still very young. And I was in this real bad way. Like my mind was just not in the right place. And I was drinking. And then I took a hit of acid. And then I took another hit of acid. And then I spent about 14 hours reviewing my life. By the way, I don't recommend this. You know, I know that um, psychedelics is a new area of research for mental health, and it's a wonderful area of research, by the way. And if you find a qualified clinician who can help you and support you in that, I think that's great. That's what you need to do. And I encourage that. But <laughs> that's not what I did. I went on an awful, terrible ride that left me in a bathtub, like blasting classical music, trying to calm myself because I was at the bottom. That was it. It was scraping my soul. And so I had to make changes after that. And so actually my partner at the time, I called him, I said, I got to come home, even though we were separated. I was like, I got to come home because I needed that home base. And she said, great. Yes, please. That's fine. And so I did. And the result was on the way back, I just realized, I like it popped in my head, alcohol has been there at the best moments of my life, right? And it's been there at the worst moments in my life. And unfortunately for me, the I guess if you can imagine this kind of like going from the black to the red, it just started dipping over into the red in a bad way. And so I had reached the limit where alcohol was no longer serving me in a positive and constructive way. Now, I want to clarify something. I don't think that's everybody, right? Like sometimes people feel judged when you say, I don't drink or it was bad for me. And I have to say, it was bad for me, right? And that's it. Stop. And I realized that I had to make changes, not just in the way I drank, because I don't, I didn't identify with being an alcoholic, right? But I also had to make changes in my mental health. So I saw therapy. I checked myself into an outpatient program. I started to really focus on my health and well-being. So this moment of absolute being at the bottom, and we know this, Josh, like how many people in our industry just die? Like they just die. That's it. They get to that tub moment. And instead of finding the way up, they find the way out. And it's so sad. So for me, I was lucky. I found the way out, right? I was able to reduce my drinking, get help and start this sort of upward spiral that has led me to this day where I feel great. I feel healthy and I feel like I have a lot to offer and give back to the industry in the sense that for those people who are looking for an excuse to change their life, to change their lifestyle, well, if I can be an excuse, then God's sakes, use that excuse. It's so interesting to me, though, not that you accomplished what you accomplished, but that you were so public about it, because I read the Vox article, and it was raw and real and very transparent and that's not the industry you were raised in, right? Every day is the best day of your life. You've never had a problem. 
And if you were to complain, you certainly shouldn't complain to other industry people <laughs> because nobody really wants to hear it. And, and in you being transparent with your struggles, it illuminates the struggles of others, right? Then they're forced to take a look in the mirror and look at, it's one of the reasons that owners and operators, you know, how's business? Oh, it's fucking great. Because if you say that it's bad and your business is bad too, because everybody's swimming in the same toilet, then we all kind of have to face the realities of our situation. So what was the impetus to go public? Well, I just thought maybe I'll just leave the industry. How am I going to tell people? I've been saying, hey, drink this great thing, right? Remember the eight people at the corner of the bar that was like, try rye whiskey. You got to try it. It's amazing. Like, what was I going to tell those people that kept showing up? Like, I'm just kidding. Don't drink anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, it didn't make sense. So I was really scared about that. Really scared. Like, it's hard to explain just how frightened I was of that situation. But I started talking to people close to me. Then I started kind of going out further and realized that people are actually very receptive because it turns out we all have shitty moments of our lives. We all have gone through something, even if it's not the exact same journey I've gone through. And everybody in the restaurant industry has a story, whether they're a line cook or an owner, they've gone through some journey. And if they haven't gone through some journey, guess what? That's because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> right. But it, it's going to happen in some way. And maybe it won't be as dramatic and hopefully not as dramatic as what I went through, but maybe it'll give somebody a little bit of comfort knowing that somebody went through it and got better for it, right? Well, and you don't advocate for abstinence. You advocate for what you call mindful drinking. Yeah. Do you want to define that for me? Yeah, it's just drinking with intention. Because I think that we have lots of responsibility message that kind of becomes white noise to us. When Fireball on the side of their bottle said, and I hope you're not sponsored by Fireball because this will go down badly. But Today's um, show is brought to you by Fireball. <laughs> <laughs> they have on the side of their bottle, you know, drink responsibly. I don't know if they do, but it's something like that. And you're like, really? Really? Does right. it, is anybody drinking Fireball responsibly? Probably not. <laughs> and I respect responsibility messaging, but it's a little bit of white noise, right? And then you have these like, people are pure abstinence and recovery oriented, which is great for those people who need that. But there has to be something in the middle that helps support people and in a way, teach them how to drink. And so mindful drinking is just the start of that. It is, why do you drink? Ask yourself that question. And if the answer is, I don't really have to drink, it was enjoyable to me, then that's a pretty good answer. Like, I mean, you can't really knock that one down. But if the answer is because I was really stressed out, if the answer is because I sat down at the bar and somebody pushed a Fernet shot across the bar and I was like, well, I'm just going to drink it. If the answer was, I do this, that's what I do every night, I drink. Those are all really awful reasons to drink <laughs> in a way, you know, I don't want to judge people, but I want to just tell you that's not a really great reason to drink. And that's where it can become negative. And so I think it's important to kind of just be aware of your reasons. And if you're satisfied with your reasons, then let my voice drone off somewhere else. Don't listen to me anymore, right? But if you're not satisfied, then maybe I can help and support that way. 
Well, there was a groundswell prior to the pandemic, right? We saw the introduction of low and no ABV cocktails, and it became a culture onto itself. Maybe not with our generation, but certainly with the younger generations. They wanted to enjoy these high-quality cocktails without getting drunk, which I got to tell you, is a product of the 80s and 90s. I still struggle to understand. (laughs) Um, I do, candidly. Um, But there is. And, you know, it seems like it lost steam over the last three years. I think that the number one reason that people drank during the pandemic, I have no data to back this up, but it's boredom. It's depression. It's isolation and loneliness. And in those moments, booze is a great, terrible friend all at once. That's right. But I'm hoping that this groundswell will begin to build again. Has that been your experience? Are you saying that low and no ABV cocktail and cocktail culture is beginning to rear its head again? It is. I would start that out with what I tell people because I do consulting for no and low alcohol menus because I think that people, it's very confusing, right? Like some people, they just put like a syrup and some soda water on top and they're like, here's my non-alcoholic thing. It's on the kitty part of the menu, the very back. Nobody orders it and they go, see, people don't want this. But what happens and what I explain to them is 23 out of 100 people that are walking in their bar or restaurant are ordering soda and lime. They're just missing out, right? And they don't say anything because they're just used to it. They just got used to it. They're like, all right, I guess there's nothing for me. Imagine ignoring a quarter of your customers. Absolutely. It's insane. Look at Liquid Death. It's a billion-dollar brand built around trying to eliminate the shame associated with sobriety. That's right. So having great no and low alcohol cocktails, all of a sudden your check average is going up, right? Because it's not that people won't spend the money for it. It's that you don't have it. You don't have that for them. So they're willing to spend the money. And and very often you can put the same level of detail and creativity into those drinks that you would a you know, cocktail with alcohol. And that's what I try to do. And I'm now I'm just going to do this like little plug for my book. Mindful Mixology, (laughs) which is a comprehensive guide to know and low alcohol cocktails. So I wrote that. It came out earlier in the year. But in it, I really just tried to think about how do we make non-alcoholic cocktails, ones that are like adult, sophisticated drinks. They're convincing. They're the part. They're not just kind of souped up lemonade. And so I think that those opportunities are there, right, for the quarter of the public that's coming into your bar or restaurant that's not going to serve. You can serve them. And so that's already there. Plus, you have this growth of like sober October that we just finished and dry January. And the majority of people who drink non-alcoholic products are people who drink alcohol. So they just want to do something. Brandy ran from the IWSR, who's a genius for coming up with this term. She came up with the term tempo drinking, right? This is the future of Gen Z and young millennials. They want to hang out and be in the space, right? They want to vibe with their friends and have a great time. And they are checking and controlling that vibe, right? So instead of just going drunk, you know, it's I'll have a no alcohol cocktail, then I'll have an alcohol cocktail, then I have a low alcohol cocktail, then I'll have a no alcohol cocktail. So it's increasing the amount that they're drinking and it's decreasing the amount of alcohol. So that's a really perfect storm for bar owners and restaurateurs to take advantage of. The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. Oh, yeah. 
How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Oh, man, this is going to like fly in the face of everything I said about my success. Don't work so hard. Right? <laughs> Stop. You're working too hard, man. All of you, you're working too hard and they're demanding too much of you. It's not fair. You don't have to work 14, 16 hour days. You don't have to live that vampiric lifestyle. You need sleep. You need rest. You need water. You need good food. You need movement and not just behind the bar. That's all you need. And I think that you can't get that when your entire life is wrapped up in being a bartender or being a server or being a manager or an owner. I know it seems like you have to. It seems like a necessity, but you don't. You can take some time for yourself and it'll improve everything. In fact, the quality of your thinking improves when you get sleep. That's a really empirical evidence to suggest that that's true. So the more correspondingly, the less that you sleep, the less is the quality of your thinking. You're less creative. You're less able to solve the problems that you need to solve. That's Derek Brown. For more on Mindful Mixology, visit PositiveDamageInc.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.